This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In a year in which gardeners and other humans alike are having to meet and process and pivot around and over and beyond a wide variety of challenges and lessons, sometimes we just need a message of hope and beauty, small gestures of love and care that make a difference. Today, I am pleased to welcome Teresa Sabankaya, floral designer, founder, and creative mind and heart behind the Bonnie Dune Garden Company in Santa Cruz, California. She is a pioneer of the slow flower movement and famous for her posies, which update and integrate the age-old Victorian language of flowers. Her recent book, The Posy Book, Garden-Inspired Bouquets That Tell a Story, embodies just this kind of plant-based, hand-held gestures that sometimes mean everything. Welcome to the program, Teresa. I am so pleased to be speaking with you. Jennifer, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. Describe for listeners who may not be familiar with your work and, and even those who are like what is your relationship with plants professionally and personally in this very weird year <laughs> well i'll tell you what it's even deeper uh, in this very weird year my business evolved from my passion in the garden and um i i was at a point in my life when i started my business where um my two young daughters had, uh, you know, freed up some time by entering their school age years. So my, they freed up some time for me and I started hankering for, um, you know, t- to work on myself and just, you know, do things for myself. And t- for me, that meant the garden. Because, um, you know, when you've got two young children, you have to put all that stuff aside a little bit. When we gardened mm-hmm. a little bit, I always had vegetables and a little flower patch. But I wanted a bigger scene than that for me. And I I have always been healed um, mentally. Um, I've always said I got to have dirt under my nails <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, um, because it's it's just it's it's a refuge for me working in the garden. It's good for me physically. It's so good for me mentally. Um, but I was at that point where uh, I didn't want to go back to, I was working in corporate travel at that time. And um, I, I said, I don't want to go back to work to that. And um, I, I really just wanted to make a new business. I wanted, I always respected um, entrepreneurship, especially women entrepreneurship. And I let that guide me into making a decision to creating a business out of something that I loved. And I talk about that a little bit in my in my book about how that started. That is literally how it started. I was, um, you know, desiring to be back in the garden. First, I'm a gardener. Second, I'm a floral designer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's been... 21 years now since Mm -hmm. you really launched this and it started as a relatively small gesture and has grown quite, quite a bit into, um, because I, I, I think when I have heard you speak before you describe your early days at, you know, a a little flower cart kind Mm -hmm. of thing in Santa Cruz, right? In 1999. Yes. In 1999, it was a little kiosk, um, 
60 square feet of space. And you would not believe how many flowers I packed into that little space. Um, but yeah, I worked out of 60 square feet um, uh, downtown Santa Cruz on Pacific Avenue. And I was growing a lot of flowers at that point, too, because I had my first endeavor. Once I made up my mind that I was going to start a business, I wasn't really sure where this was going to go. I didn't really know what my niche was. I really mm -hmm. didn't. I started my business with just a pure and simple love of flowers, giving flowers, making beautiful flower arrangements, making any kind of gift from the garden. Um, just getting back in, you know, like I said, getting my hands dirty, growing things. And I really didn't know um, where this was going to lead me. And I was very fortunate to have the setup in my family structure that enabled me to do that. So, you know, both financially, financial support and just the support of my husband and, and his family. Um, because we live on a family proper, you know, kind of like a compound, we call it. Um, so I had to have everybody on board with me, you know, with this yeah. idea. Yeah, of uh, the garden uh, there and yes. it's supplying the kiosk. And then, as you say, kind of listening to your deeper intuition as to how your your niche and your specific calling would would evolve. Yes, right? it did. Yeah. It really did. It it did evolve. Mm -hmm. All right. Before we get deeper into that evolution that leads us to the current day from that original instinct to kind of transition from being a full-time mom and caretaker at your home and, and land there to starting your small business and then growing it along. Take us back to, to your earliest kind of inspirations and, and models that would lead you to be a person for whom this was going to be a calling and where were you born and raised and who were the people and plants and places. Oh, I love this question. You. <laughs> yeah, you might I have to too. stop me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I was born and raised in South Texas, um, south of Houston, well, right on the coast there, a little north of Galveston. And um, my earliest memories of feeling a connection with plants and gardens came from both sets of my grandparents. On my father's side, every time we would go see Granny and Pop, which was about, I'd say probably like 80 miles away, we always started our visit with a walk through the garden to look at the trees. How are the pear trees doing? She grew in an incredible array of daylilies. Those were her pride and joy. And um, I have many pictures of me and my sisters and cousins sitting in the daylilies. And <laughs> um, all kinds of fruit trees. Um, Pop, my grandfather, you know, he, he always had a huge vegetable garden uh, and grew lots of peanuts. That was always just the funnest thing for us to go and dig up peanuts with him. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I remember having my first real connection. Like, you know, I remember being with Granny and Pop out there and, 
You know, they just had, they lit up when they talked about their trees and their vegetables and the, you know, the flowers and everything. Look at that bloom. Just look at that bloom. You know, look at the colors. <laughs> so, and, and that came from that side. And also on my mom's side, my grandmother, um, her mother, my grandmother, who I, that one is Nanny. There's Nanny and Granny. And Nanny was more of a house plant. She was, she would be known she was known as a crazy houseplant lady. <laughs> um, just, every, every family needs one, right? <laughs> every family needs one. There was nothing that she could not grow and have it just thrive. I remember neighbors coming over to get cuttings. And I remember, you know, old, you know, gentlemen coming over that had been, you know, big, avid, you know, gardeners. And they'd say, how do you get this to do this? And I mean, this is me probably like seven, eight years old learning all this and understanding what plants mean to people and how people can light up when they see, you know, a rose in full bloom, a garden rose or a daylily or a, a zucchini or, you know, I, I, I learned from a very young age that there is a wonderful, positive um, soul healing relationship that people have with our natural world, plants and gardens yeah. and things like that. And it's funny because it's almost beyond language, right? I mean, it, not even almost, it is beyond language. I mean, it is. You picked it up as a small girl mm -hmm. seeing this relationship of like, hi, I'm so glad you're here. Let's go see the garden. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, my, my mother was the same way. And the garden was a member of the, like the family. It yes. was a highlight of why mm -hmm. we were together. And mm -hmm. I love thinking of young people today, even hearing a conversation like this in passing and having any of that like seeded somewhere in their deeper brain, uh, to, to be a value that's held up. So you're, you're, you're in South Texas, uh, again, sort of in a coastal environment. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get to Santa Cruz and oh. start and start your family and move into like travel? And, and I love how sometimes these connections actually teach us lessons that we need for whatever the next stage is. And mm -hmm. I'm sure there are those for you yes, there in are. corporate yeah. travel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I ended up, um, there were a lot of stops between Texas <laughs> and Santa Cruz, um, but but we my father was um, with Dow Chemical and he mm. was transferred, um, uh, you know, throughout his career to different areas. So we went from Texas to Arkansas, um, which opened up another dimension of the natural world for me because mm -hmm. I'm used to South Texas coast, flatlands, marsh, humid, you know, uh, that type of gardening to, mm -hmm. I went up to Arkansas and, uh, you know, we saw a hill and thought it was a mountain and it looked like Mount <laughs> Everest to us. So <laughs> it was just this wonderland. And we, of course we bought the, we bought a house up on a hill in Russellville, Arkansas. I look at that. I look at that hill now and I think is that what <laughs> we thought we were on a mountain I mean I go through there now and it's like um okay <laughs> right it's about yeah. 400 feet no um but but we thought it was you know the most beautiful thing um on earth so we had this uh house on the hill and boy mom and dad put in major 
vegetable gardens there, flower gardens, trees, and all down the front side of the hill, I noticed the first spring after we arrived, it was covered in daffodils Mm. and just wild daffodils. It was someone had planted them years and many years before us because they were huge swaths of daffodils, the big King Alfred varieties. And, um, I just thought that was just, I I had never seen anything like that. And I used to go down there and pick daffodils and that I was about 11 or 12 then. So I see, I was really into the flower thing already. Um, I just thought it was the most, absolutely the most beautiful thing in the world to walk down that hillside and sit down, you know, in those daffodils and I just would cut them. You know, I wouldn't cut them. I'd pick them. I'd just pull them, you know, break the stem. And um, and get that juicy sap Get that juicy sap yeah. all over. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up in, after Arkansas, for about four or five years, we went up to Michigan. Again. Wow. So you're getting a little scene. colder. A yeah. little colder, <laughs> yeah. which is, yeah. which is yeah. interesting, right? Because you couldn't grow a field of... King Alfred's, I don't think, in South Texas. Nope, we couldn't. Yeah, mm-hmm. no. So, so Michigan brought a whole new level, a whole new world of gardening and plants and flora and fauna um, into my um, into my life. And I again, tulips, 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 tulips. I mean, we just, I could not believe the beauty and the magnitude and the strength and the size of these tulips. Um, We bought this house and they had planted them um, every spring up the front sidewalk. It would just be thick, just thick as can be tulips Um, and conifers, you know, the evergreens up there are just so beautiful. Yeah. Um, So, uh, and then, and I got tired of that, you know, I was up in my teens, I graduated high school there. And then I wanted to be, tra- I wanted to travel. So I went to a trade school in Florida to learn how to be a travel agent and, um, came back up, got a job at a travel agency and then survived two or three more cold winters. Um, brutal. I mean, we were on Lake Michigan shoreline. So it wasn't just winter. It was a shoreline winter, <laughs> which is yeah. a whole different it's cold. Uh, oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so I survived a few more. And you know, I was 21 years old and, and I called my girlfriend, my, my best friend in high school had moved out to here to Sunnyvale. Um, mm. I called her on the phone one Sunday and we we're having a chit chat. And she said, What are you still doing there? Get out here. There's tons of jobs out here in the travel business. Because she was a travel agent too. And um, it, it was a week later, I was on a flight out to San Jose. And um, I got out here and um, got a job like the second day. I got seven job offers in one day. Wow. Yep. So I left Michigan. And so what, what, year, what year was that? <laughs> that was in 1986. Teresa. Okay. All yeah. right. And um, I met my husband when, when I was out here on job interviews. Yes, I met him at a bar. <laughs> that is so great. You met him at a bar. I met him at a bar, which is, you know. It just, I don't know if it's the same nowadays, but, you know, back then that was kind of like, um, you met him at a bar and you're going to date him, you know, like <laughs> it's kinda, it was kind of like a taboo thing, but we hit it out. If there is such a thing, I, it was literally love at first sight. 
Mm. And we've been together ever since. That's so, great. um, but again, you know, coming out to California when I actually got, you know, I went, flew back home, you know, I took the job, flew back home, got all my stuff ready. My dad drove me out here and all the way from, you know, Michigan out to California. He's saying, are you sure? Are you sure you want to move way out of here? We have no family out here. Um, right. I said, yes, yes, yes. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're joined today by Teresa Sabankaya, owner of the Bonnie Dune Garden Company in Santa Cruz, California, and author of The Posey Book. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Now, I know it might sound like nothing more than a platitude, but it's reached platitude status for a reason. Here it is. Sometimes it's the smallest things that make the biggest impact. At this time of year, when the capitalistic, consumeristic, resource-intense, and narcissistic, frenzied modern U.S. version of Christmas takes over the collective consciousness, apparently helping the economy but not much else, this is a platitude to repeat to yourself like a mantra like Meg Murray repeating her love for her brother and Mrs. Witch over and over to escape the evil mental clutches of it in Madeline Langle's classic A Wrinkle in Time. Repeat this mantra. Repeat after me. It is really the little things that matter. Hand-picking a few blooms into a gifted posy, hand-crafting a small wreath of garden-gathered greens, taking a walk to find acorns and pine cones and bright leaves in the winter sunshine, remembering to take the time and attention to say, good morning, thank you, I love you, you are so beautiful, and good night. To your garden, to your houseplants, to your favorite tree on the street, and anyone else you love. Happy December, my friends, and thank you. I find walking this path with you, especially in this season, to be incredibly, truly beautiful. We're back now to our conversation with Teresa Sabankaya, author of The Posy Book, Garden bouquets that tell a story, just in time for the seasonal greening and gifting of winter holidays the world over. As we come back, Teresa shares more of her big leap of a transition from Texas to California. Well, when I got when I arrived in California, I was absolutely floored with all the trees and the, the variety. The, the microclimates. I had never seen anything like that before. So before um, my children were born, uh, we lived up here in Bonnie Dune on its different property, my husband and I. And that's the first chance I really got to garden in California. And I had such a huge success with my little flower garden and, you know, my plants and everything and vegetables and all that. But fast forward to uh, when I decided to create a business, I was sitting um, here on this property out in a field of scotch broom, which is, I don't know if you're familiar. Oh, I am. Yes. 
<laughs> Very invasive. My husband's family, none of them had really done anything to cultivate a garden here. And there was two acres sort of on the front south facing side of the property that just was, as I said, a field of scotch broom, berry brambles, brush, some, you know, old tractor equipment, so on and so forth. And that's where I was sitting out there and just looking around thinking, oh, my gosh, this is so perfect for a massive garden. And um, that's where it began. I, I, I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant a bunch of flowers. I'm going to make a business out of something to do with flowers. But first, I want to become a really good flower grower. So that first year, I put in probably, um, I believe it was close to 800 single late French tulips. Mm. And um, I put them in that fall. The following spring, I put in a couple of hundred um, oriental lilies, mainly the big Casablancas. Mm -hmm. So now when this, that spring, when the tulips started coming in, like gangbusters, because I learned after I, as I was putting them in, that this property used to be an old goat, dairy goat farm. So I had all this out there in that two acres is all where they grazed. So I had all this manure stacked, stacked up in there and years and years of basically just hummus yeah. and, and compost. Those tulips, I, I, the stems on them were, I've never actually, in fact, grown them quite that vigorous as that first year. Yeah. But they all started coming up and then I was like, okay, <laughs> now what do I do? <laughs> now what do I do? So I um I think the first sale was I just started putting them in five gallon buckets and taking them up to the school when I would pick my girls up from school, the little Bonnie Dune school, and open up the back of my car and tell all the lady, the ladies that were coming to pick up their children that I've got these amazing organically grown French tulips in the back of my car. And they would come buy bunches of tulips. And, you know, I had, had one lady, um, she, she bought them from me every week. And then when I got into the kiosk, she started coming to the kiosk. Um, I just wanted to say as a side note, she's still one of my customers to this day. She, yeah. Oh, it's, that's it's such awesome. A, um, I don't know. It's just a kind of a heartwarming idea, you know, that she was there for me from the, from the very, very beginning. And I know she'll still be there, you know, as long as I'm doing this. But um, then, so the school wasn't enough. I still had loads of tulips. And then I took them down to the flower shop, the, the kiosk that was owned by a different lady, Flowers by Concha. And I pulled up and I said, look, I've got these tulips. And she said, oh, my gosh, I've never seen tulips like this. I'll take every one of them. So, <laughs> so that's how I started. And that, that gave me the... Um, you know, the mental energy 
um, and the confidence that I needed to keep doing this. And what, what I wanted to do was really find my niche, and I was beginning to find it. Okay, I could grow some pretty mean tulips. So um, yeah. then I started selling them um, at our local independent organic food market here on the west side in Santa Cruz. Um, and they would bunch them up and sell them um, out of their produce department. And they b- always bought everything that I had. And that continued through the summer with the with the um, lilies and whatever else I was growing, which were, I think, just various right. little perennials, not too many other things that first full year, just the lilies and tulips. But as I was putting this garden in... Um, and planting more and more things. That's when I started taking floral design. I took one floral design class at the local community college here and started just buying, you know, every floral design book that I could get my hands on. Um, Yeah. What were some of your early ones? And I want to just note that I think you're talking about Cabrillo College, Mm -hmm. which is just, I want to do a shout out to junior colleges and their incredible richness they of really resources are. for people, right? Especially mm-hmm. in a moment like this where the world is such a slippery place for mm-hmm. our young people and um, to be able to gain access to educational resources like our junior colleges offer is just... It's a godsend. Yes, it is. A gift. It really is. Mm-hmm. It is. Yep. So, um, and so you, I love this startup, this like teaching yourself and putting your toe in all at mm-hmm. the same time. And then, you know, slowly you also start, you take on this mantle of the garden mm-hmm. style at a time when it was kind of reviving, um, but kind of needed people to keep that revival going. And um, and you become one of the founding members of this thing that we talk about, the Slow Flowers Movement. Talk a little bit about your involvement with that and why that's so important to you, Teresa. Well, um, it's important. When I, when I decided to create my business, um, at the time, now keep in mind, I, I was coming from Michigan, you know, so we did not... We we didn't have a, a flower shop in Michigan, and most of them across the country at that time were doing uh, baby's breath and roses and stiff imports and no life, no no blousy, ephemeral, fragrant, nothing, just boxed, stiff flowers. Um, I'm not saying that these other flowers did not exist, but as you said, they were way in the background. And I decided when I first started thinking about what it, what's my what's my hook, what's my gig, what's my anchor. Well, that is I came out to California, and I cannot believe how many things we can grow out here, and I can't believe no flower shop out here that I can find is is growing beautiful garden flowers, the kind of flowers where. You look at them and you're reminded, I'm reminded of Granny's garden or, you know, Aunt June's garden or, you know, the hedgerows, you know, over the neighbor's fence, whatever. It's, um, it's a link that was missing. 
in floral design. And my goal from the very beginning was to provide that bridge and put these designs out there, whether, and I knew, you know, I, I knew this is probably something people aren't ready for. I've got a long climb ahead of me. Um, and the other thing was I'm not going to put any chemicals in my garden. I don't want to farm with chemicals. I know that there's a better way to do this. Sustainable agriculture at that time was just obsolete. Right. And I could go into a whole other interview about that whole, you know, the agriculture part of it. But, but I wanted to do something different. I wanted beautiful cut flowers grown without the inputs of tons of pesticides, tons of synthetic fertilizers, so on and so forth. Right. And that seems like such a common understanding and intention at, in, mm-hmm. in this day and age in 2020. But in 1999, that was not yet the mainstream no, understanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were regularly taught to feed your roses and most rose food came with built-in yes. systemic insecticides and fungicides. And, and we didn't you know, it, it was just not part of the common culture. And so I'm guessing, I might be wrong here, but that, you know, the move to someplace like Santa Cruz, which has a fairly progressive and nurturing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. culture, that that was helpful to your own education and, and cultural consciousness at that time. Absolutely. Some of my earlier reference books, and I still use them to this day, are the Rodale Gardening books and um, the Organic Rose Garden. Um, and my earlier influence, they, they are my early influences. And I, I, they're like my Bible, you know, the way these people gardens. And as far as floral design, you know, getting getting that look that I was craving, my earliest influences were, um, and this isn't that early. Paula Pryke isn't that early. Constant Spry, yes, you know, that's that's going back to for me. That's going back, and I absolutely adore her style. And um, yeah, yeah. It, so it existed. It just, I was just like, where did that go? <laughs> Um, right, what, how, right, can, how right. can we get that back? Um, and I just devoured every book I could get my hands on. And Paula Pryke's books were absolutely um, instrumental in the formation of my design style. Um, there were a few other smaller, I don't have the names off the top of my head, but there were a few other smaller, lesser mm-hmm. known designers um coming out of England that I followed, got everything I could get my hands on that they ever did, um, old books, and just learned from, from them I, and, and trial and error. And, and I, I started getting, I got my first business account um, at a dentist office here in town. And I don't think they that's liked great. my style too much. So see, that's, that's what I'm, I knew I had a long road ahead of me. Um, because they were used to the more, you know, the hybrid roses coming out of, the, out of Columbia, you know, they were used to, used to the leather leaf and the hybrid roses. And here I am bringing in, um, I had put in 200, um, old garden roses 
Yes. Oh. And they were starting to bloom. And that's when I started thinking, okay, now I can start getting some accounts. Um, and not everybody, like I said, not everybody was ready for it. But I got down there at the kiosk that became available to purchase two years later. And I got in there and yes, I was, I was able to find a happy, um, niche. I, I wanted to buy all local going back to the slow flowers things. Um, I wanted to buy my, well, I wanted to use all my stuff, all my greenery and what I was growing. And then I wanted to find all the local people that were growing. And that was extremely difficult at that time. But I knew they were out there because I'd go go around to different grocery stores and I would see in their produce department, oh, look at that little bundle of, you know, uh, Black Eyed Susans. You know, they're growing something. Right. And I would seek right. these people out, seek them out. And, of course, none of them were ready for me, the florist, to come to them and say, you know, can I get 10 bunches of, you know, whatever you're growing? And they, they were right. like, consistently uh, every Friday. No. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, but I was so um, set on providing local Locally grown. It was so important to me to reduce that carbon footprint, support our local farmers. And at that time, people thought I was bonkers. I'd be at the kiosk and I'd have a bunch of sweet peas grown by this dear woman um, in Coralitas. She found out about me because I she the kiosk kind of started when I got all my garden flowers out there and started making these gorgeous arrangements, people were starting to take note. And she came to me just like I did eight years before with those tulips, opened up the back of her car and she had this sweet peas in the back of her car that had stems about two feet long. And I was like, Oh my mm. gosh, <laughs> you're growing right. those. And she said, yes. And she had three kids in the car, <laughs> three young kids kids and I said I'll take them all and um, she still grew sweet peas for me every year for about three years and then they had to sell their property Um, but um, I think it's important still to this day just like when I started to provide consumers with a locally grown product that they can feel good about um, supporting our local a, a local economy and bringing back our flower farms that we lost, you know, during the Andean Fair Trade to Act back in 1992. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you know the story. It became cheaper to import um, than to distribute themselves. And for me, that was just, um, I, it, it was just ridiculous. We have all this amazing farmland in this country. Um and I just, I just wanted to stick to my guns. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Teresa Sabankaya, owner of the Bonnie Dune Garden Company in Santa Cruz, California, and author of The Posy Book, Garden Bouquets That Tell a Story. We'll be right back for more with Teresa. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, if I were to make you a posy right now with things in my garden, a posy that would mean shared garden and nature appreciation, it would be filled with these. 
bright red rose hips from my iceberg rose bushes, dried oregano blooms which still hold a bit of pink blush, light catching wheat colored seed heads of native deer grass, a few plush silvery accents of native salvia leucophylla, and a cluster of bright red native toyon berries from one of my garden shrubs. These would all be skirted by dark green small-leaved branches, they're almost boxwood-like, from my front dry summer gravel garden. And these would all be tied up with a white fabric ribbon. Can you see it? (laughs) I love this stuff. And a heads up, if you love this kind of thing too, and if you live in California, Did you know that I am a celebrity judge for a convivial competition being hosted by the California Native Plant Society this season? It's called Wreath Masters. Please find all details in this week's podcast notes for making your submissions of wreaths before December 18th, when the judging will be held live. The kind people at CNPS sent me the invitation to be a judge, and as I love making reads more than just about anything this time of year, I said yes. When they then sent me the layout with bio photos of the three-person celebrity judge panel, I looked at the wow, beauty, and dashing design of my gorgeous fellow judges, Katie of Eothan Floral Design along the Central Coast, and Maurice Harris of Bloom and Plume in LA, and I said, Oh my goodness, I look like everyone's fifth grade teacher scolding you not to touch the flowers. So I made John take a new photo of me. (laughs) It's not Katie or Maurice. And yes, I am a total fangirl here. But it is a far better representation of the great joy I take in this season and in our incredible biodiversity of generous plant life here in the California Floristic Province. And I am getting better on the far side of a camera the older I get. You let me know, okay? The new photo is better for a celebrity wreath judge, yes? And we're back now with Teresa Sabankaya sharing with us her floral journey from early childhood in Texas to her floral business, the Bonnie Dune Garden Company in California. When we left off, Teresa was sharing the earliest phases of her garden-based floral business and how it was a challenge in the beginning to source everything from local growers because brides and hosts would request flowers Teresa couldn't source locally. As we come back, she shares that as she made a name for herself, it remained a priority to her to support local organic growers. And eventually, she overcame this challenge. I have to be honest, it wasn't always possible, you know, because my when my events started taking off, I started booking more and more weddings. Well, they wanted things that I couldn't supply. Right. And I would have to go up to the San Francisco Flower Mart and, you know, get things from Holland for this or that or from, you know, uh, Columbia for one thing. But it was far and few between. And every year it got less and less. And I sort of planted myself and made a name for myself. And then I was able to slowly say to that 
client, I will not be able to do that for you because I do seasonal and I do local. And here's what we're going to have. And yeah, and I, and I turned it around and, and kudos to you because that is, you know, where the educational impact of someone like you setting that tone and leading that way, it really starts to create the sea change we want to see in our world. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I'm, I mean, it kind of makes me feel really ancient (laughs) when I think think about the difference um, you know, it's a start difference from when I, when I first started, couldn't find, you know, first of all, couldn't find anything locally grown yeah. hardly. Um, and then through the years, um, I don't buy, I mean, bringing it to today, I, I, I mean, absolutely. There is nothing coming out of my work that's not supporting either my little operation here in the garden or someone else in Bonnie Dune even. Yeah. And then it slowly kind of filters out, but it's all local. And which is, it's just um, the impact one person starting that can, can make is just not to be underestimated. And it isn't Jennifer. And I used to say, I'm telling you, people used to look, I'd be in the kiosk and someone come by and they'd look at my tulips and I would say, those are, lo- I would always say the same, hello, how are you? Those tulips are locally grown and they're grown organically. And they would look at me like, okay. Yeah. Crazy lady. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a, there was a major, even in right. Santa Cruz, right. no. you know, it was a major disconnect. No one understood why I was doing that. And yet that. now, 20 years looking back, and we see the changes that the slow flower movement, thanks to people like you and Deborah Prinsing and Aaron Benzacane and Amy Stewart, like you see mm-hmm. that change and it is very real, both environmentally and economically. And um, yeah, that's- It I, gives I, me chills. It, it gives, gives me, me chills, chills too, Teresa. It really does. Um, uh, so now I'm watching our time closely because I do okay. not want to lose out on talking about the Posey book. Right. Your, you know, your original heart and style in that kiosk all those years ago that was supported by that lovely older woman and the likes of Amy Stewart and, you know, you were in the Michael Pollan PBS documentary uh, about the botany of desire and, you know, but that like little seed of your heart in these messages of these flowers is really all brought together in this culminating work that not culminating like you're done, but it's, it's a lovely embodiment of that idea of the posies and what flowers mean to us. Talk about mm-hmm. the, the posy book and, and how it was a dream come true to put it together, Teresa. Well, it is a dream come true to be holding this book in my hands yeah. and I <laughs> And it's so I, lovely. Um, it's um from 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 way back and I won't go way back, way back, but just a little side note. Um when I was putting in my garden and starting my business, that's when the seed to this book was planted. Mm-hmm. Because as I stand out in that field, of brush and start cultivating a garden. 
um, and looking around to all the different places that I went in California, in Santa Cruz, and looking at all these different plants and flowers that I had never seen, but I had heard of, um, I started just thinking about the language of flowers. And I, you know, my husband always says, you're an old, you are such an old soul. Mm -hmm. It comes out in you a lot, you know, this romantic idea of cryptologic communication (laughs) through such a romantic thing, such as beautiful flowers. Um, I've always been intrigued um, by anything Victorian in that era where they romanticized everything and to have flowers in with that and creating these messages, message bouquets um, was just intriguing to me from the very beginning. So when I, um, I started putting the idea of creating a modern posy together when I got into the kiosk Mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, this is a way for me, like, why don't we, I thought, I always thought to myself, why don't we use the language of flowers anymore? What happened to that? Um, it's a, it's just such a, um, it's such a magical thing. Yeah. And um, I, th- I felt like we needed it back then. And boy, do I feel like we need it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, using the language of flowers to convey messages sort of, um, it bypasses, it allows us to bypass formal, um, the formality of some of the things that we have to say to people or we want to say, yeah. it allows us to really get inside ourselves and really think about what is it really that you want to say. And you start looking at a floral dictionary. Um, in my book, of course, is a very comprehensive one. Um, and you start reading some of these meanings. You think you see things in here that you wish you had said to right. someone that, that would have been perfect, you know, but, um, but that's why I wrote the book. Um, right. I, I wrote the book because I wanted to give people a beautiful, inspiring vehicle and methodology, um, in a way that they can start communicating with flowers by making these modern day posies. Yeah. And that's how it, sort of came about. Um, And one of the things I love about it is your modern update on what each flower means, because in some way, it also gives us the permission to come up with our own meanings, to mm -hmm. update what does a flower mean between me and another person I love, you know, because it might have a very different history and personal meaning. And again, to kind of start to come full circle, it, it goes back to that idea that flowers and plants convey something beyond the constraints of human language as we understand it. That it is yes. this body language and this um, this innate understanding mm-hmm. that is intuitive to us all if we open up to it, right? Exactly. Yeah. In the foreword in the book, Amy Stewart wrote it perfectly. It says, a posy invites scrutiny. It asks for a little attention, a bit of consideration. A posy is small enough to hold between the palms, but it delivers a world of sentiment. Mm. Yes, I love that. And 
And that's what happens, you know, through the years when I started giving people, you know, putting posies out at the kiosk, um, I started getting orders for them. Um, but I've seen the reaction so many times that people have when they see posies, because first of all, you look at it, it is a beautiful floral arrangement. It's a beautiful composition. And what's intriguing most about the, one of the most intriguing things is its size and stature is not overwhelming. It's, you know, they're about 10 to 12 inches in circumference. And I usually set them, you can set them in a mint julep or you can set them in a goblet. Um, they fit nicely on a nightstand. And there's so much texture, coordinated texture, coordinated color, that that's what intrigues people a lot about them. It draws them. But then when they see that it has a little sentiment tag hanging from it that has all the names of the flowers and what they mean, the definitions, and what the overall sentiment of that posy is saying, that's when you see people, oh my gosh, like you really thought about what you wanted yeah. to say to me. And that right there, you really thought yes, about this. you really thought. That means so It really much. does. I love the book. It gives you a primer on what they are. It gives you a history of the language of flowers. It gives people some very easy recipes of plants to put together and how to build them, how to make them so they last, which I love. And then it gives you this new language of flowers dictionary so that, you know, it gives people a place to start and then hopefully ignite their own imaginations and creativity. So I'm going to spring a question yes. on you. Uh, that I did not mm -hmm. prepare you for, but I, I, I just know you're up to this task, <laughs> Teresa. If you, if you close your eyes, I want to offer it as a gift to my listeners to think about as we move into the, the holiday season and the ideas of being grateful mm -hmm. and thankful. Um, if you were to build a posy doesn't have to be in the book, but if you were to build a posy from your summer garden to offer out to the young people in our world right now, facing so much transformational change, which is both terrifying and exciting, mm. put that little posy together for us. Oh my gosh. Ugh. I know it's a tough one. Take your time. Oh, that just, it just, the posy would be, um, 20 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, simplify from there, Teresa. Okay, simplify. Um, white roses um, representing peace. Um, Hypericum for haven and protection. I think of chrysanthemum, that comes to my mind because um, it represents optimism and love. Uh, cheerfulness under adversity. I like to use, um, I would use some Aeoniums for um, vivacity. Uh, sage for wisdom. And I'll finish it off with some Dusty Miller, which is Felicity, Extreme Happiness. 
And I could think of so many more things. <laughs> That's the thing about making a posy. Sometimes you have to rein yourself in. If you're making a posy for something such as what you just suggested, um, this is the beauty of the language of flowers and what plants in, in our whole natural world can do for us. There are so many um, just little, simple little things. Oregano, joy. I would want to say something for grief, even, you know, a healing, um, you know, the he yarrow uh, for healing. It, it, the list just goes on and on. Right. And, you know, that thought and art and heart all together makes a, a wonderful small gesture in this world on an individual and a cultural basis. And I just really, I thank you for your work and your voice and your big hearted South Texas <laughs> laugh, <laughs> Teresa, um, in, in this world. So thank you for being a guest on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Teresa Sabankaya is a floral designer, founder, and creative mind and heart behind the Bonnie Dune Garden Company in Santa Cruz, California. An early pioneer of the slow flower movement, Teresa is famous for her posies, which update and integrate the Victorian language of flowers. Her recent book, The Posy Book, Garden-Inspired Bouquets That Tell a Story, embodies just the kind of plant-based handheld gesture we are perhaps all yearning for this year, and especially at this time of year. Find out more about Teresa's work and her posies, the posy book, and her newest posy kits for things like the Holiday Warmth Posy or the Fortitude Posy over on CultivatingPlace.com this week. Join us again next week when we continue our winter greening cheer in conversation with Todd Carr and Carter Harrington of Hort and Pot, a botanical workshop in Oak Hill, New York, dedicated to embracing the seasons, celebrating the natural world through handcrafted botanical works, and reimagining the relationships between people and the natural world through botanically driven design. You won't want to miss this winter fireside chat, awakening the sublime of the season. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listeners supported through CultivatingPlace.com. For many images of the botanical pick-me-ups that are Teresa's posies and gardens, head over to CultivatingPlace.com and look for this week's post and notes under the podcast tab. Happy December to you in your place from me in mine. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.